Welcome to the podcast for The Abbey, a vineyard church located in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous sermons on Apple Podcasts or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There, you'll also find important announcements along with the location and time of our in-person gatherings. Now, here's this week's message. All right, well, this morning, um, I actually want to start with a couple of announcements before we get into it, um, in part because I know I'll forget at the end. So um, some of you are familiar with the work we've been doing with what's called Sanctuary Night. And so just as a brief mention, I said this a couple weeks ago, but um, we're really at an exciting point, which is that our building is almost ready. And for those of you who don't know, yes, it's very exciting. (laughs) Um, We've been working on opening up a building, a full-time drop-in center for women who are involved in the sex trade here in our neighborhood of Franklinton. And this is a space where they can come in and they can get a meal and they can get clothing and really just have some time, build relationship together. And um, this week I had the opportunity to go into the building and we were doing some painting and there were cabinets. So some of those final details are coming into place and we're just a couple weeks away. It's very exciting. So if you haven't been involved um, up till now, but you might be interested, or if you're just interested in learning more about the injustice of human trafficking here in our community, I want to just commend you to consider this training. She Has a Name is a local nonprofit organization that does a wonderful introduction to human trafficking. And their next training is this coming uh, weekend, Friday evening and Saturday morning. And it's on Zoom, um, so it's pretty accessible, it's free, and it is available once a quarter. So if you miss this one, no problem, it'll be available again. Um, But I just wanted to make you all aware of that. The other kind of announcement I need to make is just a simple content warning, which is that um, we're talking a little bit about justice today. It's hard to talk about that without talking about injustice. So you will hear things about sex trafficking and prostitution and police brutality in the time that we have together this morning, Um, most of which is in scripture, by the way. Um, And just to say, I trust all of you to take care of yourselves and your families and make the decisions that you need to, but to just recognize we'll be getting into it, okay? So we've been in a series over the last couple months called Becoming Human, and the question that we've been considering is what it means to be a human. And we've been giving some consideration to this idea that our life is effectively lived in a womb where we're being formed into the kind of humans that we were meant to be. And for those of you who maybe haven't been with us since the beginning of that series, I'm gonna offer just a really quick summary of where we've been just to get us on the same page. But I should mention, uh, if you haven't been with us, Go to our website, listen to the podcasts, listen to the previous messages. They've been wonderful. So some of what we've discussed includes to remember that our places of weakness are meant to be places where the glory of God is revealed. We've also discussed this idea of leaning into healthy community, which can be an agent for healing to the places of isolation and disconnection and hurt. And also about leaning into generosity, which can bring healing to a scarcity mentality. And today, I want to talk about the work of mercy and justice, which I think brings healing to the places of condemnation and judgment. 
Another way to summarize this is that weakness can help me know that God is enough. Healthy community can help me know that I am enough. Generosity can help me know that there is enough. And mercy and justice can help me know that there is enough for everybody. And before I get to this week's passage, I want to tell a story of a Franklinton neighbor by the name of Donna Dalton. But before I share the story, I need to provide just a little bit of helpful background information. I met Donna in the summer of 2018, and at that time, I was working for a program called Catch Court. For those of you who are not familiar, it's our local courts. Uh, It's a specialized docket similar to a drug court or a mental health court that cares for specialized populations who come through the court system. It offers a two-year program of rehabilitation, of healing and restoration and community and treatment as opposed to uh, the, the jail system. And so I was working there and working with women who, um, you know, exiting the sex trade, whether they were um, identified as trafficking victims or not, and they wanted something different with their lives. And so they said yes to this two-year program. And so in my time working there, around this, this time, spring, summer of, of 2018, I began hearing some stories about a particular Columbus police officer. And just to say, in my time working there, I'd heard stories of police brutality from these women more than once. These stories, I wasn't numb to them, but they also, frankly, just didn't shock me. But this one name kept coming up, and so I actually began to solicit for some more information. I began talking to some women to find out if they had had experiences with this individual. And there were too many stories to count. And so I wasn't really sure what to do with this information. I sought out some advice and what, was, uh, what, was, uh, what I was encouraged to do and what I did was to report it to Internal Affairs. Internal Affairs is a part of the division of police that is responsible to investigate and police the police. And if that makes you seem, if that seems strange, then it's a little strange. <laughs> I'll just say that it's, it's strange. <laughs> So what they told me, what internal affairs told me, was that, okay, we're going to be investigating this officer, and while we're investigating him, he does not know he's under investigation, and he will continue to function as a full police officer with all the benefits and all the rights and and all the power that he had. Okay. Meanwhile, Sanctuary Night in the summer of 2018, again, same population, but not in the the court system, but on the street. Sanctuary Night was pretty busy. Summers, we tend to be quite busy. And it was there in May or June of 2018 that I met Donna. She was 23 years old at the time, and I was struck by her. She was young, she was sweet, she was very quiet, she was beautiful, and she was a mom. And I actually will never forget just her face in this moment. She seemed not... um, you know, she, she didn't seem too happy with her life, but there was a, a little bit of a shine when she began to talk about her two kids. A couple months later, I met her again. The Columbus police did a what's called a sting operation in our neighborhood, basically where they do a sweep of the women on the street. Um, and Donna, unfortunately, had already had a, um, a warrant for a previous charge, and so she was being taken into custody at this 
sting operation, I, along with some other social service folks, were invited to be there just to meet these women, to tell them about some resources that they might have. And so I met Donna there again, and she was getting ready to go to jail uh, for her first time. And so she was very scared and nervous, and we tried to kind of walk her through, here's what you might expect. <clears throat> and over the course of the next few weeks, she goes through the court system, and her case, um, you know, is, is handled, and she is sentenced to complete um, a class called Catch 101. She was scheduled to take that class in September of 2018, and she was told that upon completion of that class, her case would be dismissed. Except Donna never made it to that class. On August 23, 2018, Donna Dalton was murdered near the corner of Sullivan and Yale by Columbus Police Officer Andrew Mitchell, the same officer I had reported to Internal Affairs a few months prior the one who was under investigation for his mistreatment of women in prostitution. I'll circle back to this story later, but want to mention that it is real life, modern stories like this that undoubtedly provide a particular kind of lens for me when I approach passages like the one we're going to look at today. Why don't you pray with me? God, I thank you for the privilege of telling your stories. Help us to hear what you want us to hear today. Let us encounter your mercy in this place. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So coming to John chapter 8, while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. So a couple things to note. One, this obviously is a trap, right? It says that. It's a trap. They're seeking to, they've basically already cast a verdict upon this woman, but they're seeking to set up Jesus. A couple of things that are important to note from the law, since, since they mention that here. Leviticus 20.10 is where we find this law about adultery. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. That might make you wonder, where was the person she was committing adultery with, I wonder. <clears throat> Eye roll. Um, yes, I wonder that too. <laughs> But that's the law that they're referring to. Also maybe helpful to know that in Deuteronomy 13 and in Deuteronomy 17, there are passages there about stoning those who entice you to worship other gods. Now that's important because this idea that these religious leaders are setting up Jesus with the hope that he'll effectively 
uh, go against what the law says. And so they might then be able to accuse him of going against the law and effectively enticing us to worship something else, some other God, and therefore be able to stone Jesus. So the, point, the first point I want to make here is that when we are accused of being anything other than beloved sons and daughters of God, we are not the only ones undergoing accusation. There's something of us in her story here. And I want to be clear about differentiating between our identity as beloved children of God and our condition as sinners. Meaning there might be times, of course, where we need to talk and confront sin and behaviors and we need to hold people accountable and there have to be consequences. I get all that. I'm not referring to that. But the voice, of our, the voice of accusation in our head tends to be an accusation of identity, right? I am bad. I am worthless. I am an adulteress, and that's all I'll ever be. But if Jesus has named me as a beloved daughter of God, and I'm accused of anything else, isn't Jesus also being called a liar? And listen, I know that often we can be our own accusers that we have these narratives in our head. And I'm not bringing this to mind to pour shame on anyone struggling with some of those thoughts or accusations in your head, but I hope that even today, we can help one another look at Jesus to see who here is doing the condemning. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So I'll pause here again. What do we make of Jesus writing in the dust? And honestly, this, this is what I imagine to be a little bit of a Rorschach test, meaning it reveals more about us than anything. Some of you love the mystery of God, and you're, you love this story. You love that you have no idea what Jesus wrote in the sand. And some of you are like, I need to know what he wrote. I feel both those things, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, But I think there's one other place in scripture where we read about the finger of God inscribing something, and that is Exodus 31, 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So get this, the God who wrote the law in the first place and inscribed it with his finger before handing it to Moses, stands here now, finger in the dust, inscribing something new. It's as if to say, I did not give you the law to condemn you, and I am not here to condemn you. The law reminds you that you need a rescuer, and here I am. Whatever sentence is written is written in the sand, not on a stone tablet. So can you imagine what will happen when the wind blows? The sentence is destroyed. We might even say expunged. The sentence is passed over. And in this moment, mercy is demonstrated both to the woman and to the accusers or the stone throwers. 
So what is it that Jesus accomplishes by inviting the morally perfect to, to cast the first stone? He invites them to see what they have in common with this woman in the middle of the crowd, that they're both, that they're all sinners in need of mercy. The truth is that if they were to cast this judgment, this vengeance, this condemnation, it would harm them just like it would harm this woman. They would be sustaining a social structure in which forgiveness would be as rare as perfection. So impossible, basically. And they would be therefore condemning themselves to being defined forever by their worst thoughts, words, and deeds. So condemnation always cuts life short. A woman would be stoned, to be sure, and a crowd would be forever held to an impossible standard and imprisoned by the worst thing they'd ever do. So the mercy that Jesus offers is for the victim and the victimizer. In other words, it's for everyone. In the kingdom of God, there's enough mercy for everyone. Do you hear how countercultural this is? When we think of justice, we often think of revenge, honestly, of someone paying for what they did. When a cop uses three bullets on a woman sitting in the car with him, murdering her, we're tempted to believe that a sentence of death or life in prison is justice. Remember that justice, biblical justice, is setting all things right. And a life in prison might be the closest thing our collective imagination has come up with for accountability or consequences, but it's not justice. So the hard part, even for me to admit, is that I, I have spent the last better part of three and a half years gaining some pleasure from the idea that Officer Andrew Mitchell is in prison, that he's probably not having a very good time there, and his life is effectively ruined. I don't know how this situation gets set right. I don't have the imagination for it. I don't have the mercy for it. What is accessible for me is to imagine my shared humanity with Donna Dalton or the woman caught in adultery in this crowd that I could have easily been one of them. But what's less natural but equally possible is that with some different circumstances, I could have been Andrew Mitchell. And I could have been one of the accusers with a stone in my hand. What is also true is that Jesus gave up his life for all, for the Donna Daltons and the Andrew Mitchells of the world. And there is enough mercy for everyone. Verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Deuteronomy 19.15 talks about this idea that one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. So when Jesus asks, is there no one left to condemn you? It's basically like, it's just you and me here. It's just you and me. What does Jesus say to you when it's just you and Jesus? 
St. Augustine says of this story in this moment when all the elders have left, that two, two are left, misery and mercy, speaking of Jesus and the woman, which I think is a good summary, not just of this story, but probably our stories. Isn't this our story? Jesus showing up with mercy in our place of misery. And our invitation then is to live in response to that mercy. So my third point is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope that sounds familiar. It's Romans 8.1. I believe our capacity to demonstrate mercy to others is absolutely connected to our capacity to receive mercy. What is your ability this morning to hear, to really hear, that there is no condemnation? That Jesus says to you, neither do I condemn you. Those with the stones in their hand were able to drop their stones of judgment and condemnation once they recognized and received on some level the mercy of Jesus. I'm aware in this time that in a few days, really, we'll be in a season of Lent, uh, leading to Holy Week um, and Easter eventually. And that one of the things that we often do, in, especially in Holy Week, is journey through the stations of the cross as we journey with Jesus uh, toward the cross. And the first station of the cross says this, Jesus is condemned to death. Jesus is condemned to death. Jesus does not condemn. This next point, and this is really a question instead of a statement, is just what do you want Jesus to do for them, whoever the them is in your life? If you remember in verse 3 in this story, we're told that the religious scholars and Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery. That phrase, broke through a crowd, struck me and reminded me of another story where a group of people broke through a crowd. It's a story found in Luke 5, the friends who carry their paraplegic friend on a mat and they break through a roof and they lower him down so he's right in front of Jesus in the midst of a crowd to get healed. What is it we want Jesus to do with the people around us? Are we more concerned that Jesus would condemn or judge bad behavior and encourage right living or change thinking? Or are we more concerned that Jesus would bring healing and demonstrate mercy? What do you want him to do for them? For what are you willing to bust through a crowd? And my last point, and this is especially for those of you who work with marginalized folks or, frankly, who are raising children, is that people will most assuredly not just go and sin no more. (laughs) Oh, you already know that. (laughs) That's great. What I mean, of course, is that, you know, people don't always clean up their behavior. 
few chapters earlier, we know the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And one of the things that is so sweet about that story is that we get to know what happens after she has this transformative interaction, right? That we know she goes on to be an evangelist and tell her story and speak of what Jesus has done for her. And it seems that her life has changed. We know nothing about this woman caught in the act of adultery. We know what Jesus' parting words to her are, but we have no idea what she does with them. So what is to come of this woman? Well, what if this woman is a prostitute who has an opportunity for life change and doesn't seize it? What if she remains in her life of shame? In justice work, we often see moments where we think this could or should lead to life change, and then they don't. And then what? This woman was definitely on the margins, so when I think about what becomes of folks on the margins, I can tell you this from my work with Sanctuary Night. Sometimes they're murdered, like Donna Dalton. Sometimes they relapse. Sometimes they are sentenced to prison for fighting for their life. And it's tempting to quit or to lose hope. But then sometimes they stand in a drop-in center that is getting ready to open and write their sobriety dates on the walls with sentences like, come sit at our table, take rest, you are good, progress, not perfection, neither do I condemn you. Sometimes the adulterous woman becomes a mother of sorts who births a drop-in center for marginalized women. There are no guarantees. This work is hard and not to be done in isolation. In a moment, we're going to have a chance to worship together and to minister to one another. So in closing, just a couple of final thoughts. Do you have friends who will bust through the crowd to get you to the healing touch of Jesus? As a friend reminded me just this week, Sometimes you have to let yourself be the one on the mat and let your friends break through the roof. Remember that this place of weakness, this place of tiredness, of anxiety, of wanting to quit, it's meant to reveal the glory of God. He is enough. Remember that this place of weakness can be an opportunity to lean on community. You've done enough. Remember that there is abundance in the kingdom of God. That there is enough for you and for those on the margins. My prayer for our community today and always is that we'll be a people with a deep sense of our belovedness an expansive imagination for setting the world to right, and a profound sense of solidarity with one another and with our neighbors. Solidarity, of course, coming from the word solid, meaning entirely of the same stuff. So here's some good news. We get to become human together. We are the beloved community. And we'll get tired, 
and our edges will get frayed, and we'll remind each other that we're made of the same stuff, and we are loved, and that might just help us carry on in the work of setting the world to right. Amen? That's worship. <laughs>